Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives and a special summer edition of our podcast. I'm Victoria Courtley and today we're bringing you some of the highlights of our podcast's first year. Over the past 12 months, our discussions have touched on everything from life satisfaction to the gay pay gap, challenges not just for our regions, but the rest of the world. In the very first edition of Pocket Economics, our presenter Jonathan Charles and EBRD head of research Ralph de Haas discussed microfinance and access to finance. Here, Ralph explains what do people typically do with the microloans. So basically, until a couple of years ago, we, we really didn't know uh, the answer to that question. Um, there's not a lot of monitoring by the, uh, the lenders to, to see what people actually did with, uh, with the money. So I think one of the good things of some of the more recent studies that have been undertaken, very rigorous studies that have been uh, done by researchers in, in seven uh, different countries, is to actually, first of all, find out exactly that question, what do people do with it? And what we found, somewhat to our surprise, is that a lot of people use this microcredit as a form of consumer credit. So they use it to buy a television, a fridge, or uh, another useful household appliance, which is great. It's apparently something that they really need and are willing to borrow uh, and pay for. But it's not the sort of narrative that we've heard from the microfinance industry. So um, there are people that use this money to set up an enterprise. And in some cases, but in, not in the majority of cases, unfortunately, they are successful in doing that. But a lot of people actually use it as, as a form of, um, of consumer credit. Ralph de Haas on microfinance. The aftermath of the 2008-2009 economic crisis is still being felt across the EBRD regions. What lessons have we learned from it? How can the economy become truly resilient against such shocks? EBRD Head of Economics Policy and Governance Mattia Romani and Boyan Markovic, his deputy, examined all this and more. We saw that very clearly during the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, most recently. That was not a healthy economy and the impact of a financial shock, which uh, should have been uh, limited and, uh, if you want, uh, should have been constrained by policies, was not, and trickled throughout the uh, real economy first, and then from one country to the other, creating one of the largest global shocks the uh, economy has ever seen since we started measuring it. Boyan, we hear there then, okay, resilience is very important, but how do you go about measuring resilience and, and working out whether an economy is truly resilient? Uh, there, there are uh, many ways to measure the resilience, as there are many shocks that can hit economy. Mattia mentioned financial shocks that can be oil price shocks or food price shocks. When it comes to the financial shocks in the financial system, there are many different indicators, both quantitative, qualitative assessments and so on. But we can bottle them up maybe in two uh, major groups. One is a set of indicators that measure soundness of the financial sector, and in particular banking sector. So things such as profitability of banks, such as loan to deposit ratio, level of non-performing loans, or indeed the level of dollarization or euroization in an economy. There are also uh, indicators that should measure availability of diverse sources of funding. So not only bank funding, but also private equity or equity funding, something that in EBRD we are focusing in particular. And when it comes to you know, like of sort of looking to which extent you know, like these indicators raise alarm bells, it's not one indicator that can you know 
cause a source of alarm. It's really a particular combination, uh, amber lights appearing left, right, and center that can actually uh, uh, give us an idea of to which extent an economy is resilient, to which extent you like we might have some false alarms or something. Why is the concept of transition right at the heart of what we do at the EBRD? And why is it still relevant in building open market economies? Here is our chief economist, Sergei Guriev, explaining in the episodes why transition. Soviet economy just went bankrupt, mm. which was quite an event if you think about how many shocks Soviet economy went through, how it was one of the major superpowers, and it just disappeared. In the words of one of the historians, it seemed to be forever until it was never more. In the last years of uh, Soviet economy, it was running 10-year percent of GDP budget deficit. In the very last year, it was 30% of GDP. It was just not sustainable. It could not actually work, and it had to change. And uh, at, the other, uh, at the same time, we saw other economies uh, in the Western Europe, in the United States, in Japan, very diverse backgrounds, and yet converging on the model of uh, markets, private ownership, uh, these economies delivered much higher living standards, and it was clear that transition to market economics was the only way forward. So you could argue it's the difference between rigidity, perhaps, under command economies and flexibility under market economies. It also freedom. I think market economy has also this uh, philosophical idea that if you let people do what they actually want to do, it may work out better. It's not just flexibility, but also this optimistic view on human nature. You're listening to the best of Pocket Economics, a program of highlights from the past year. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what do you think about our podcast. What improvements could we make as we approach our first birthday? Send us your ideas and suggestions at EBRD on Twitter, hashtag Pocket Economics. The Arab uprising of 2011 was a defining moment for the Middle East and North Africa. Our chief economist, Sergei Guriev, and the World Bank's chief economist for the region, Shanta Devarajan, looked at the economic context of those events. The social contract in the Middle East and North Africa region had a particular characteristic um, that was distinctive of the region, but surprisingly common among the countries of the region. And they consisted of the following f- features. One is that the state guaranteed jobs for university graduates. Secondly, the state provided health and education for free to everybody. And third, the state provided subsidies to, uh, for food and fuel to virtually everybody. Now, the other side of this contract was that the population, in order not to lose this largesse of the state, kept their voices quiet. And they tolerated a fair amount of repression and capture. What makes us happy and how do we measure it? What is the correlation between economic growth and life satisfaction? Here, Sergei shared the findings of the EBRD Life Satisfaction Survey. In, in terms of happiness, uh, one of the first findings in this literature was so-called uh, Easterlin's paradox, where he said that, well, it is relative income that matters, not absolute income, uh, in a sense that if uh, both your income, Jonathan, and my income grow by 10%, our happiness levels don't change. Now, since that time, a lot more work has been done with better data, and by now the consensus in the literature is at least until something like seventy or $80,000 per capita, we have almost a linear relationship with log income 
and uh, happiness. So every 10% increase of absolute income makes people same number of points uh, happier. And we see that in our, in our countries of operation as well. Now, one of the things uh, which is also a very important finding from that, uh, and we see that in, in transition countries as well now, is happiness usually falls uh, with age until middle age and then starts to increase, and people become happier and happier later on. Now, in transition countries, before, that was not the case. If you go back 10 years, you see that happiness just falls with age until you die, basically. Older people would be less happy than younger people across, across the age spectrum. Now we do see a turnaround. So uh, people who are older than about 50 start to become happier. And I think it's also a landmark in the sense that uh, our countries become normal, and uh, that also uh, creates the feeling that while being old in a post-communist country is not a great uh, outcome and uh, a great socioeconomic situation, but it's better than, say, 10 years ago. We do see that. Uh, finally, we see this normal U-shaped relationship between age and happiness. Now I know why I'm so happy I'm obviously getting old. Uh, another interesting finding of the report is that immigration uh, is becoming an issue for, for many countries. That wasn't there before in the same way, was it? Absolutely. Uh, this is, this is uh, where we find that uh, our countries become uh, more concerned about immigrants. I should say that our survey was administered in the end of 2015, beginning of 2016. So in many of our countries, people were concerned about the refugee crisis. Uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, these issues, uh, and especially in the uh, policy debate where uh, immigrants and refugees are sometimes linked uh, with terrorism, and our countries have also suffered from terrorism, I think this is a salient issue. And this is why we uh, run those surveys. We want to inform ourselves, but also policymakers, to pay attention to what people think. And uh, I think this is why the bank is uh, funding those services, supporting those services, and uh, our shareholders uh, uh, help us to run those services, is because we want to set our priorities right. Because we are not doing reforms just to uh, make reforms. We are working to actually deliver uh, happiness to our, our public. And in that sense, life satisfaction is an ultimate metric for our work, very much like for the governments and the countries. What does this survey tell us about attitudes towards democracy in these countries and, and, and the market economy? Yes, this survey, uh, when it was uh, first administered in 2006, was already a wake-up call in the sense that in many of our countries of operation, uh, public is quite disillusioned with market uh, economy and democracy. And we see that in many countries we still have uh, about only half of the population supporting uh, market economy and democracy. Uh, much less so than we would think uh, 25 years ago. So there is a major disillusionment. Part of that is, of course, driven by inequality and inequality of opportunity. Part of it is driven by corruption. And that's why we, our bank now includes governance and inclusion as part of our transition uh, concept. And uh, our projects will actually contribute to improving governance and inclusion and equality of opportunity. So these are very, very big issue uh, for our region. On a positive side, uh, while we observe enormous hardship in Greece, we do see that Greeks uh, remain committed to democracy. One of the things that really affects people's happiness levels is corruption. And corruption levels remain relatively high across the BRD regions. 
What is the role of courts in fighting corruption? We asked Peter Greisel from Washington and Lee University. Well, unfortunately, lots of corruption actually happens in courts, <laughs> uh, right? So, um, I mean, what courts certainly can do is, is um, be on the lookout uh, for situations where, where corrupt practices arise. Uh, and in courts, in courts themselves, what we have to do is sort of try to make sure that judges have, we can never totally remove them, but at least have uh, the minimum possible incentives uh, to engage in corruption. Now, some people will argue uh, you can achieve that by uh, providing them with, you know, sufficiently high salaries and compensation. Mm. I'm not fully sure uh, that that's necessarily a good argument. And, and, you know, the economics literature has shown that and has argued that way. Uh, because if I am paid a higher salary, <laughs> what that probably means is that if you want to bribe me, you pay uh, a high bribe. you'll have <laughs> right. to pay a higher bribe, yeah. right? Because actually what you want is not about salaries, you want it to be about morals, ethics, don't you, uh, amongst the judiciary? Yeah. That's yeah. correct, right. Yeah. And and I know that, you know, uh, various initiatives, both both probably the ones started by EBRD, have emphasized uh, the sort of professionalism and, and, and the moral aspects in, in judicial training, uh, which is, I think, where um, probably one of the key possibilities for, for alleviating corruption in courts actually are. And finally... Here is a million-dollar question we put to our chief economist, Sergei Guriev. What is the country's optimal economic growth rate for achieving happiness and prosperity? If we think that advanced economies grow at 3%, uh, then I think people would be sufficiently happy. Uh, now, uh, some uh, American politicians believe that America should grow at 4%. Uh, people who oppose those politicians on the uh, far left of American political spectrum thought 6% growth is even better. Uh, but 3% is a good rate for an, American, for an American economy. European economies, if they would grow at 2.5%, Again, everybody would be happy. Now we are growing at something like one percentage point below those numbers. And that, of course, worries people in the advanced economies and necessarily people in emerging markets for whom advanced economy is a major source of investment and a major destination for exports. Well, that's it for today. You've been listening to some of our highlights of the last year. You can listen to the full version of the podcasts featured in this episode on SoundCloud, iTunes or ebrd.com slash podcast. And remember, rating Pocket Economics will help others to find and enjoy it. Until next time, goodbye.